Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. My name is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby. I am the Director of Outreach for Torch, the Torah Outreach Resource Center here in Houston, Texas. If you enjoy this podcast, there's a good chance you may like my four other podcast channels, the Parsha Podcast, Eternal Ethics, This Jewish Life, and Torah 101. The links to all those can be found in the description, as well as on my personal website, rabbiwalby.com. Before we begin, I have a short request. When the podcast is finished, please visit our website, torchweb.org, to see a sampling of Torch's other amazing programs. Our podcasts that have been downloaded hundreds of thousands of times by people all over the world are only one aspect of our global impact. And once you're on the website, please consider partnering with us by making a donation. It means a lot to me, and it goes a long way. Thank you so much. If you happen to be in Houston, come by. Visit us live at the Torch Center. I'd love to meet you. Otherwise, please email me, rabbiwobi at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today is the 42nd anniversary of the most dramatic hostage rescue in history. On the 6th of Tammuz, July 4th, 1976, incidentally, the bicentennial of the Declaration of Independence, a team of Israeli commandos flew 2,500 miles undetected across hostile countries, raided the Entebbe airport in Uganda, and rescued 100 Jews who were being held hostage after their commercial plane was hijacked. This stunning, daring, audacious, miraculous, Hollywood-esque rescue wowed the world, galvanized the Jewish nation, and became, of course, the subject of four different Hollywood movies. It was also the central catalyst of the political career of the current Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. It's uh, arguable that without this particular event, even though he was stationed in Boston at the time, it's arguable that he would never have gotten into politics and wouldn't be, uh, he's almost on the doorstep of being the longest serving Prime Minister in Israeli history. This flawlessly executed, extraordinary operation was called by the New York Times, quote, an operation with no precedent in military history. And not only did it not have a precedent, it didn't have a successor. Uh, thenceforth, every such terrorist hijacking and hostage situation is going to be informed by the Entebbe rescue of 1976. Now, at the time, the 60s and 70s were renowned uh, for terrorists using hijacking of airplanes as a way to inflict terror across the world. In 1968, in August, an El Al plane to Algeria was hijacked, and after 40 days of captivity, Israel agreed to release terrorists in exchange for the passengers and the plane. After that event... El Al became the world's experts on plane safety, which is why when you go to Israel, they ask you a million questions and they assume that everyone's a terrorist who has bombs and knives and guns planted all over them. And of course, in the past 50 years, there haven't been any hijackings on El Al planes. Other airlines were slower to adopting preventative security measures against hijackings, and that of course led to a bevy of hijackings in the late 60s 
and all throughout the 70s. So famously, the Black September of 1970, there was a whole bunch of hijackings during that month. And there were also three passenger planes that were hijacked by Arab terrorists and flown to Jordan and blown up in a very dramatic way in front of the international press. In one of them, incidentally, TWA Flight 741, the great Rabbi Yitzchak Hutner was one of the preeminent Rosh Hashivas in America, the Rosh Hashiva of the Yeshiva in Brooklyn called Chaim Berlin. Him and his family were passengers and they uh, had to experience that traumatic experience of being kidnapped and being held hostage and ultimately being rescued. But the laxity displayed by the other airlines that weren't Israeli that allowed for the hijacking of an Air France Airbus 300A that occurred on Sunday, June 27th, 1976. Flight 139 was carrying 246 passengers when it departed Ben Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv en route to Paris with a stopover in Athens where the security was notoriously lax. In 1968, for example, there were terrorists who were firing shots and throwing grenades at an El Al plane as it was taxiing down the runway in Athens. And in fact, a passenger died and a whole bunch uh, of passengers were injured when bullets actually penetrated the plane and hit them. Those terrorists were arrested and one of them was sentenced to 17 years in prison, of which he served a grand total of four months before he moved to Canada. This particular flight in Athens picked up an additional 56 passengers, four of which were terrorists bearing guns and grenades. One of them, Wilfried Biza and Bridget Kuhlmann, were Germans from the revolutionary cells, a German leftist terrorist group, and two of them were Arab terrorists. It's interesting, some of the passengers actually commented, these people look like terrorists, why are we allowing them onto the plane? But they were allowed on the plane, the plane took off, and eight minutes into the flight, two of the terrorists stormed the cockpit, kicked the door in, and commandeered the plane. The passengers were informed that they were hijacked by the by the popular popular front for the liberation of Palestine which protested the alleged crimes done in Palestine by the Zionists within 30 minutes the air traffic control in Israel received a message the plane was missing it was not responding to radio contact and an hour later they discovered that it was hijacked Initially, the plane landed in Benghazi in Libya for refueling. It remained there for nine hours. During that time, incidentally, the hijackers released a British-born Israeli nurse by the name of Patricia Martel. She pretended to be having a miscarriage by cutting herself on her upper thigh. Now, she wasn't even pregnant But the terrorists bought it and they released her. She was examined by a Libyan doctor and she stayed overnight in a hotel in Benghazi. She was a dual citizen, both Israeli citizen and a British citizen. She hid her Israeli passport and she showed the authorities in Libya only her British passport. And the following day, she was put on a plane to London. And she was the first to provide 
intelligence to the Mossad, to the Israeli intelligence force, trying to figure out what to do and trying to piece together as much information as they could about this hijacking. 3.15 on the 28th of June, the plane landed in Entebbe Airport in Uganda on the north shores of Lake Victoria, one of the largest lakes in Africa. Once on the ground, the plane was surrounded by Ugandan soldiers. The hostages deplaned and were transferred to the old terminal building where they were visited by Uganda's insane president, the dictator Idi Amin Dada, who rose the ranks of the Ugandan army before seizing power in a coup in 1971. For the duration of this episode, it's going to last about a week, it's clear that not only did the Ugandans and their president and their army, were they complicit, they actually participated in all stages of, of the crimes and the terrorism of the hijacking and the treatment of the hostages. It's interesting that Idi Amin actually had a long relationship with the Israelis. They provided him military aid for many years, and he was close friends with the Israeli military liaison in Uganda, a gentleman by the name of Baruch Barlev, who was called Burka Barlev. And in fact, Amin had been in Israel several times, including he was in a hospital in Tel Aviv for the treatment of syphilis, where ironically, he was treated, one of his nurses was that same woman, Patricia Martel, who feigned a miscarriage and got out of the uh, hostage situation in Libya. If you read uh, some of Idi Amin's behavior, it's not surprising that he would end up with a disease like syphilis. Amin also had an Israeli psychiatrist on his staff who would, uh, based out of necessity, actually administer him quite regularly. And also on his heavily bedecked military uniform, he also had a medal from the Israeli Tzanchanim, the Israeli paratroopers. He really liked having lots of medals, and he asked the Israelis in 1974 if they could just give him one of those medals to add to his collection, even though it's not clear that he's even ever jumped out of a plane. And he was a horrible combination of a person suffering from mental illness, and that mixed with ruthlessness and brutality. By 1976, he had turned against Israel due to the reduction of Israeli military aid and the fact that they were called Burka Barlev back to Israel. The following day, the terrorists revealed their demands. They wanted the release of 53 Palestinian terrorists, four of whom were prisoners in Israel. The rest of them were prisoners in various countries, West Germany, Switzerland, France, and Kenya. And they demanded that these terrorists be flown to Uganda, to Entebbe, and there they would do the exchange. In addition, they wanted $5 million cash. And of course, they threatened, if Israel does not come up with their demands, they're going to start killing the hostages on July 1st. Now, on that same Tuesday, 
the passengers were separated and only the Israelis were held. And in fact, some of the hostages were Holocaust survivors and quite naturally facing a selection process by German terrorists evoked horrific nightmares for them. One of the Holocaust survivors, uh, an individual by the name of Yitzchak David, he showed the German terrorist Biza his tattooed concentration camp numbers and said to him, I see, oh, in 30 years, the Germans, nothing's changed. And this terrorist got very upset. He said, I'm not a Nazi. I'm an idealist. Don't accuse me. I have, I don't hate Jews. I just hate you guys or I hate what's happening in in Palestine. Uh, Regardless, all the non-Israelis were removed from the group and flown to Paris, including, incidentally, two yeshiva students who were from Brazil. This was the end of the summer. They were in yeshiva in Israel. And they happened to be in this plane, unfortunately. And when they were putting on their towels and tefillin and they're praying, they assumed that they're Israelis. So they just put them with all the Israelis. But in the end, thanks to some intervention, they were allowed to leave as well because they weren't Israeli, they were Brazilian. All told, there were 106 hostages, including the 12 members of the Air France crew, even though they were invited to go back home. They were led by a Captain Michel Baca. Some of the French uh, passengers as well didn't want to go. Israelis, uh, that consisted of 84 people. All of them were there in the old terminal building in Entebbe Airport. Now, the famous raid that happened a couple of days later almost didn't happen. And that's because there was a lot of dysfunction in the Israeli cabinet. One may argue that there might be a, cons- a present in Israeli politics, that there's a lot of infighting, backstabbing, and dysfunction. But the cabinet was amidst a regularly scheduled meeting when they heard about the hijacking. And at first, there was severe panic because they were concerned that the plane was heading back to Israel to crash into some building, which, of course, presents a very unfortunate dilemma. What do you do if there is a commercial plane full of innocent civilians, but it's coming to maybe crash into a building and kill even more innocent civilians? Do you shoot it down? What do you do? Eventually, they realized that they're going to have different problems because the plane started heading south into uh, many Arab uh, countries and most countries that were very hostile to Israel. At the time, the prime minister was Yitzhak Rabin. He had been the chief of staff of the Israeli army, which is essentially the leader of the army, the greatest general in the army at the time during the Six-Day War. And he was one of the few politicians that were part of the Labor Party that were untarnished by the debacle of the Yom Kippur War. At the time, he was in the United States serving as ambassador. And when Prime Minister Golden Mayer hung up her cleats, he became prime minister in 1974. The defense minister was Rabin's arch-rival, Shimon Peres. They had a very bitter relationship, which got markedly better once Rabin was assassinated in 1995. But they hated each other. And even though they're kind of similar, both of them were protégés of Ben-Gurion, both of them were towards the left of center, even though at the time Shimon Peres was considered somewhat of a hawk, 
but they hate each other. They were rivals, political rivals for, for 30 years. Rabin only selected Peres as being his defense minister because otherwise he would be unable to form a government. And if you read their respective memoirs, they disagree exactly what happened during the week of preparation for this raid. So Robin writes that Paris said, well, we're not going to pursue any military options. And then Paris writes that immediately upon hearing about the hijacking, he started making plans for the raid. Regardless, it took a while for any concrete military plans to take shape. The head of the army at the time, the chief of staff, was a general named Motagur. His division, in fact, led the successful raid on Temple Mount during the Six-Day War. He was the one who uttered the famous words, Harabait Biadenu, Temple Mount is in our hands, when they captured the old city of Jerusalem. So a few plans were proposed and discarded. The first plan that they considered was to have commandos land in Kenya, take a boat across Lake Victoria, kill the terrorists, and then try to appeal to Idi Amin to release the hostages. It was rejected. Idi Amin was very unreliable. Maybe he wouldn't accommodate this plan and they had to come up with a different plan. Then they considered maybe landing a thousand paratroopers around the airport, taking it over. Again, there was problems with that because if you try to land paratroopers, easily detected. And it's likely that the hostages would all be killed by the time you could rescue them. Maybe they thought to send Moshe Dayan, who was idolized by Idi Amin, send him to try to negotiate. It was deemed too risky. There was a joint Israeli-French plan that went nowhere. By Wednesday evening, Rabin told the cabinet, Israel has no choice but to negotiate and, in effect, surrender to the demands of the terrorists. This led to a war of words between him and Peres. Peres said, what do you mean? How do you give in to the terrorists? Eventually, the cabinet on Thursday voted unanimously to negotiate with the terrorists and to accede to their demands. At the time, the head of the opposition in the Knesset was Menachem Begin, and as he was wont to do, he would not capitalize on the political vulnerabilities during times like this, and he assured Rabin that he would support the decision of the government regardless what it would be. Both chief rabbis, the Ashkenazi chief rabbi, Rabbi Shlomo Goren, and the Sephardic chief rabbi, Maran Avadia Yosef, were consulted, and both of them urged to release the terrorists in order to save the hostages. But it wasn't so simple. There were some problems with that option as well. First of all, now that all their nationals were released, France and Germany both were adamant that they're not willing to free any terrorists. Israel didn't have all the terrorists that were on the list of the demands of the hijackers. Uh, In addition, Israel refused to release any terrorists who had blood on their hands. So for these and other reasons, the first goal was to try to buy as much time. The former military liaison to Uganda, Berk Balev, who was still quite close uh, to 
Idi Amin, he was commissioned to call him and they had a series of phone conversations to try to appeal for time. And there's, in fact, you can read the transcripts of these conversations. It's filled with all kinds of flowery praise and sycophantism. You'll be praised. He told you you'll win a Nobel Prize. You'll be a holy man if you end the bloodshed. That didn't really yield much results, but it did help a little bit in gleaning information uh, that was used in the actual raid. Eventually, the deadline was extended for 72 hours until 11 a.m. Uganda time on Sunday, July 4th. Amidst the negotiations with the terrorists that were being conducted in France, Benny Pellet, who was the commander of the Air Force, conceived of a plan to land airplanes in the actual airport, take over the terminal building, kill the terrorists, and fly out with the hostages. Uh, this plan, in its embryonic stages, it faced numerous logistical problems. Israel had a whole bunch of C-130 Hercules transport planes, but their range was about the distance of Israel to Uganda. So if they wanted to go there and go back, they'd have to refuel someplace in the middle. Where are you going to refuel amidst all those hostile countries? Uh, There was only one country that was somewhat friendly to Israel, and that was Kenya. Also, if they're going to land in the same airport that contains the hostages and the terrorists, how are they going to conceal their arrival from the terrorists and from the Ugandan soldiers that were stationed all over the airport? They didn't know exactly where the hostages were being held. What was the layout of the terminal? What floor are they on? Are they all in the the same place? And it wasn't. they had a lot of questions and hurdles that need to overcome. Eventually, the plan took shape. A team from Sayeret Matkal, which is the elite commando unit, special operations, they would land under the cover of darkness in Entebbe, and they'd fly really low over Lake Victoria to remain undetected by radar, and they would land on the heels of a previously scheduled British transport plane, so that way they wouldn't be noticed. And all their questions that they had, all their uncertainties were eventually answered. So uh, in his conversation with Borka Barlev, Idi Amin let it slip the precise location of the hostages and the terrorists. The Israelis also got a rough layout of the airport from the Israeli company, Solel Bonet, that had built it. They still had... The blueprints, the blueprints were a bit outdated, but they had the blueprints for the actual airport facilities. On Shabbos, July 3rd, a Mossad agent flew to Kenya and rented a plane and flew over Lake Victoria. And he pretended to have plane troubles. He told the air traffic controller in Atebi, I need to just circle the airport a few times to recalibrate my plane. And they allowed it. And he took high-definition photographs of the whole area and the whole old terminal, terminal building, and he sent it back to Israel. And the Israelis actually received the pictures as they were about to take off to attack and to undertake this raid. Uh, some of the freed passengers in France provided more intel, including a woman by the name of Nanette Moreno, 
she was a Jewess, but for some reason they didn't realize uh, she had a non-Jewish sounding name. Uh, they released her and she gave them detailed as the layout of the terminal and the various weaponry in the hands of the terrorists. The country of Kenya was quite helpful as well. The Kenyan Minister of Agriculture, Bruce McKenzie, he persuaded the Kenyan president to permit Israel to collect in- intelligence prior to the operation, allowed the Israelis full access to Kenyan territory, and eventually agreed to allow refueling on the return trip. But they still needed the cabinet to sign off on the plans. Uh, Paris was still unsure. Remember, Paris himself had never been in the army. One of the things that maligned his career was the fact that he never actually suited up in an Israeli uniform. He was a defense minister and he ran the defense ministry for many years, but himself was never a soldier. And he reached out to Moshe Dayan, who was one of the most storied, illustrious generals in the Israeli army history. He found him in a restaurant in Tel Aviv. And he told him about the plans and he asked for advice and Dayan said that he approved of it. Robin was still hesitant, as was Motogur, the chief of staff. Eventually, they agreed to allow to rehearse the operation. It's interesting, when you read about the various characters that partook in this raid, you find some of the most uh, legendary fighters in the history of the Israeli army. There's been 21 chiefs of staff Uh, in the Israeli army history, and six of them participated directly in this operation in one capacity or another. Of course, the Prime Minister Rabin was the former chief of staff. He was also a legendary general. Dan Shomron, he would later become chief of staff, and he was in charge of the operation. Yikotil Adam, in, in the future, he became the deputy chief of staff, and he was slated to become the head of the Mossad, when in 1982, during the Lebanon War, he was killed by an RPG fired at him by a 12-year-old boy. The soldiers in Lebanon did not shoot at this child because they did not want to be accused of shooting children. As a major general, Yikutil Adam remains the highest-ranked Israeli soldier to be killed in combat. And during the and Tabby Raid, he served as the operations manager. Ehud Barak, he was a colonel at the time. He, of course, became prime minister, his chief of staff, is the highest, is the most decorated soldier in IDF history. Today, he's one of Bibi's harshest critics. He was sent to Kenya, where he made arrangements for the refueling. Uh, Gabi Ashkenazi, he was also uh, recently one of the chiefs of staff, and he was a platoon commander. Uh, Tamir Pardo, the head of the Mossad, was part of the unit that stormed the terminal building. Shaul Mofaz, soon to be chief of staff and defense minister, he partook in the operation commanding a Sayeret Matkal Force Special Operations, uh, operations Unit. And of course, Yoni Netanyahu, the New York City-born commander of a Sayeret Matkal force that would be the first to land and storm the building that harbored the terrorists and the hostages. Yoni was the son of Ben Sion Netanyahu, who was a Zionist academic and historian 
who also served as the personal secretary of Ze'ev Jabotinsky. Incidentally, ben Netanyahu was the world's greatest expert on the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, he lived in the United States, and he was, oh, he was a professor until he moved back to Israel, didn't quite find his place there, moved back to the United States, and settled in Philadelphia. Yoni Netanyahu returned to Israel in 1964 for military service. He fought in the Six-Day War, both in the Sinai with Egypt and in the Golan with Syria, returned after the war to the United States, where he studied at Harvard, returned back to Israel to fight the War of Attrition, and in the 70s became a permanent member of the army and the commander of a Sayeret Matkal unit. Uh, He's the older brother of Benjamin Netanyahu, who's currently the Prime Minister of Israel. On Friday night, Netanyahu and his team practiced the raid in Sharm al-Sheikh in a hastily constructed mock-up of the old terminal building in Entebbe. Uh, Deep in the Sinai, Sharm al-Sheikh was actually selected as the launching site in order to cut down the flight time. But there were still some unanswered questions. How many commandos to send? How many planes? How many armored vehicles? If you send a small force, it could be easily overcome. If you send a large force, you might lose the element of surprise. How to get from the landing area to the terminal building undetected? And to answer that, they came up with a brilliant solution. Idi Amin was famous for driving a black Mercedes. And they figured they'll take the Mercedes. They'll spray paint it black because they didn't have any black Mercedes in Israel at the time. And they'll disguise it as if they put black face paint and mill the night. They'll make believe that they're Idi Amin and that that will allow them a certain degree of, of surprise to get from the landing area to the building wherein the hostages were contained. Uh, all the while, as they're planning the military rescue operation, the negotiations continued apace in France. Israel's just hammering out the details of the list of terrorists that it's going to agree to release. On Shabbos afternoon at 2 p.m., there was an emergency cabinet meeting that was convened. Obviously, this was considered a matter of pikuach nefesh, a matter of life and death, and religious members of the cabinet joined the meeting as well. Robin informed the cabinet that the planes for this operation were already in flight. But they still need to vote on approving the operation. But he assured them, if we vote against it, it's okay. We can abort the mission, call back the planes. Eventually, after deliberations, There was unanimous approval, and the mission named Operation Thunderbolt was undertaken, reversing the decision of two days prior to release the hostages. Before they adjourned, one of the ministers read a snippet from that week's Parsha, Parsha's Chukas, that quotes an episode where the Jews are fighting the Canaanites, which turned out to be the Amalekites, and the verse tells us, Vayidori Yisrael Neder Lashem, the Jewish people made a pledge, a vow to God. Vayomer, they said, Im natonti tenis amazebiadi. 
If you shall give me this nation in my hands, I'll destroy their cities. The verse continues. This is chapter 21 of the book of Numbers. Vayishma Hashem b'kol Yisrael, and the Almighty listened to the voice of Israel. Vayitena teknani, and He gave the Canaanites vechrematem and destroyed them and their cities. Vayitroshim b'kol Harama. He quoted that verse to try to inspire the ministers. Let's go beat him. In all, there were four Hercules planes that partook of the mission. They're flying very low to evade enemy radar. And all the while, for the seven and a half hour flight from Sharm el Sheikh to Uganda, seven and a half hours of radio silence. Uh, the first plane was carrying the attacking force. Yoni Netanyahu was already sitting in the front seat of the Mercedes. They even started the car before the plane landed. At 11.03, the first plane lands. The jeep starts driving past some Ugandan soldiers as planned, and then something unplanned happens. As they approach the, the terminal, there's two Ugandan soldiers, and they're aware that a few weeks prior, Idi Amin bought a white Mercedes because all the other generals had black Mercedes. And he was so vain, he said, I gotta have a different one, so everyone knows it's me. So he purchased a white Mercedes. So they ordered the vehicles to stop, and with silenced pistols, the Israelis shot them, but didn't kill them. They're still on the floor alive. And the Land Rovers that came behind them, that did not have silenced pistols, shot them dead, but may have raised the alarm Gunshots are boomeranging around the air, maybe raise the alarm to the Ugandan guards and soldiers and maybe even the terrorists. Within two minutes, the team of 29 commandos was at the terminal doors. They stormed the room. They stream on a megaphone in both Hebrew and, and, and English. Stay down, stay down. Where are Israeli soldiers? And within 30 seconds, they shot and eliminated the terrorists in the building. At 11.07, Kuti Adam radioed Israel, telling him, this is four minutes into the raid, all the terrorists have been eliminated. Sadly, there was one Israeli hostage who stood up when the shots uh, went out, and he also was killed, and there were two other hostages that died in the crossfire. Now, the old terminal building also had a control tower that was housing Ugandan soldiers who kept on firing at the Israelis. Uh, of the attacking force, only the commander, Yoni Netanyahu, was killed. How exactly he died is a subject of much dispute. Some say that the Ugandans in the control tower who were alerted to the raid by Yoni shooting at the Ugandan soldiers, they were the, that's how they shot him from, from, from upstairs. Uh, others claim, no, it was a Ugandan soldier hiding behind some crate on the ground level, shot him in his chest. Regardless, within a few minutes, he was dead. He was shot in the heart. Six minutes after the first plane landed, the second plane containing paratroopers 
and the second Sayeret Matkal unit led by Shaul Mofaz. They landed and their objective was to neutralize the new terminal building and to clear the escape route for the hostages. They also destroyed 11 MiGs, 11 Russian fighter jets that were on the ground to disable any enemy pursuit. The hostages were counted and recounted to make sure everyone was accounted for. It actually took a while for them to load them all onto the plane. Some of them were in the bathroom. Some were dragging their luggage and their carry-ons. There was a stewardess who was embarrassed to walk out. She, she was, it, was, it was late at night. She was already in her underwear. And she went to time to change. Had to pull her out kicking and screaming. And apparently, there was even one guy who ran back from the tarmac to the terminal building to retrieve the duty-free items he had bought. At 11.53, the plane with the hostages and the soldiers and the dead departed the Entebbe airport, and soon afterwards, the rest of the airplanes left as well. Sadly, there was one hostage left behind, the 75-year-old Dora Bloch. She was hospitalized on Friday because she had choked on some food. And she wasn't there with the rest of the hostages. She was being treated in a Ugandan hospital. The next day, when Idi Amin discovered what had happened, his police dragged her from her hospital bed. They took her about 20 miles away to a sugar plantation, and they shot her dead in cold blood and partially burned her body. Her remains were only recovered after the Ugandan-Tanzanian War, which ended Amin's tyrannical rule in 1979. In retaliation for Kenya's assistance in the raid, Idi Amin ordered the killing of hundreds of Kenyans living in Uganda. He also ordered the Ugandans to assassinate Bruce McKenzie, and he was killed in 1978 when a bomb was planted either on his person, on his aircraft, uh, when he um, was visiting Uganda. In Israel, there was joy and jubilation everywhere. I spoke to my parents today. Uh, they were living in Israel at the time. And my father just remembers waking up that morning. The whole country was tense. Hundreds of their co-religionists and compatriots were kidnapped, were ha- held hostage by, in a crazy place. And he remembers listening to the radio in the morning and jumping up and down out of joy. It was amazing. It was exhilarating. It's just an incredible feeling of relief and excitement and joy and appreciation uh, for this uh, miracle, essentially, that had happened. The families of the hostages gathered at the airport, and a raucous celebration ensued for those whose relatives returned alive. Uh, there were a few of them, as we mentioned, there were three hostages that sadly perished in the rescue. And they were not, though their families were not informed of the fact that their relatives had died. They had come to the airport to celebrate the return of their family members, only to find out that their family members had died while everyone else was still celebrating of the return of their family. In Boston, a young MIT student named Benjamin or Bibi Netanyahu. He was also a former com- commando on the same Sayyid Matkal unit. He was awakened by an old friend from his unit who told him what had happened. His brother had died during this operation. He drove 
from Boston to Philadelphia to to inform his parents about what had happened. Incidentally, there's also a third Netanyahu brother, Ido, who was also a member of Sayyarat Matkal. It's a very elite unit. There's only about 200 or so individuals at any given time that are part of this elite commando unit. And this was the singular event that launched Bibi's political career. He had studied philosophy and engineering and architecture in MIT, but he went into business. And he was actually a consultant. He worked together with Mitt Romney. They were friends in Boston in 1976 through 1978. But in 1978, B.B. opened up the Jonathan Institute, named after his brother, uh, dedicated to the study of terrorism. Eventually, he became a diplomat. And in 1984, was appointed the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations. In the early 90s, he had already catapulted to the head of the Likud party in Israel. The Likud party is the successor of the Herut party. It's the right-wing party of Israeli politics. In 70 years since the founding of the state of Israel, there's been only four leaders of that party. Menachem Begin, Yitzchak Shamir, Benjamin Netanyahu, and Ariel Sharon, that's it. Uh, over the course of 70 years, pretty remarkable. And in 1996, he became the Prime Minister of Israel when he beat Paris in a standoff election. He became the youngest Prime Minister in Israeli history and the first one to be born in Israel. A week after the operation, the cabinet renamed it Operation Jonathan after the commander, Jonathan Netanyahu, this remarkable, dramatic operation was largely applauded in the world. The United Nations Secretary General, Kurt Waldheim, who was a Nazi, he actually was part of the Wehrmacht in the 1940s, he told the Security Council that the raid was, quote, a serious violation of the sovereignty of a member state of the United Nations. They tried to, of course, pass resolutions condemning Israel, but President Ford sent a letter to the Israeli Prime Minister expressing the great satisfaction of the American people over the Israeli raid. In Israel, this operation helped to mitigate some of the gloom that had descended upon Israel as a result of the disaster of the Yom Kippur War. And looking back at this remarkable story, we could clearly see somewhat of divine intervention. There were so many moving parts of this operation and everything just worked so perfectly and there's so many different ways it could have gone wrong. For example, the United States military attempted to imitate it in Operation Eagle Claw, a failed rescue of 53 American embassy personnel held hostage in Tehran during the Iran hostage crisis, which led to many deaths and to much humiliation. Uh, This operation, Operation Thunderbolt, Operation Jonathan, was influential, was miraculous, was unprecedented, that brought much joy and much ecstasy to Jews worldwide. We hope and we pray that we, as individuals, as communities, as the Jewish nation and our brethren in Israel don't suffer from any more terrorism and we have the Almighty watch over us and rescue us 
from danger.